Hello and welcome back to another edition of the K-Pop Around Podcast. I'm your host, Gironin, and in this belated episode, uh, just FYI, sorry that this episode came out a day later, but it's for a very good reason, because today's topic um, required a bit more extra care, so to speak, and it's basically another Understanding K-Culture episode where I talk about Korea-Japan relations. Man, that was heavy. <laughs> like, yeah, look, I'm sure you guys, I hope you guys can understand why I had to put some extra care and time into preparing this episode of and understanding K-Culture because, you know, this is a very incredibly, you know, sensitive topic to talk about. And I want to do it as much justice as I can possibly can. So basically, like, you know, I, I kind of took the extra time to you know, add in more details to this pod than I would normally do. And hopefully, all of this extra things will be worth it. And hopefully, you know, spending an extra day to basically plan the show will be very, very worthwhile. As I feel like it was necessary to talk about a topic like this. So yeah, um, before that, of course, if you like the podcast and you like what you do, don't forget to like, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on just about any podcast platform to think of. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star rating on the podcast. That helps it a lot. And last but not least, our social media will be in the podcast description below. So with that being said, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Right, so in order to understand Korean-Japanese relations, we need to start from a question. And that question is, why should you understand the relations of both countries? Now, I kind of mentioned this in the first Understanding K-Culture episode on Korean Han, and to put it really bluntly, there's a lot of bad blood between Korea and Japan. And remember that Korean Han I mentioned? Um, Basically, a lot of that Han is fueled by the bad blood between both of these countries. And this bad blood just runs incredibly deep within Korean society, especially. And inevitably, it affects K-dramas and K-pop in a lot of ways. And, you know, unfortunately, these bad relations go back a very long time. I mean, just to give you a general idea, like, literally, there has been conflicts between both countries where, I mean, they were literally like different empires at the time, going back as far as the 16th century or like the 1500s. Like, there would literally be times in history where Japanese pirates would often raid and pillage the southern Korean coasts, which would understandably piss off a lot of Koreans at the time because there's literally these Japanese people going in and raiding and pillaging their villages and killing a lot of people, which obviously is really, really bad. But I guess in this context, I probably the centerpiece of Japanese attempts to just cause havoc on the peninsula is when they basically attempted to invade the Korean peninsula twice in the late 16th century. And to basically give you a TLDR, basically the shogun at the time, which is basically the military ruler of Japan, basically attempted to invade the Korean peninsula to basically make it a part of Japan. 
and it was a very monumentous effort and they to be totally honest with you were very very close in succeeding and that i mean the japanese were very close to succeeding but both times these invasions happened they were beaten back both times by native korean forces and also the chinese that were also involved in basically beating back the japanese and basically kicking them off the peninsula and unfortunately you know the result of these invasions just soured relations for quite a long time as you know unfortunately even back during these times you know japan was quite infamous in taking no prisoners and they killed a ton of people um there was actually there's actually an artifact that you can actually visit in japan today um oh man the name of the artifact actually slipped my mind but basically um during this time many japanese warriors or i guess you could say samurai i guess during this time basically took the noses and ears of slain koreans so this could be soldiers men women and children whatever as war trophies and basically bring them back to japan and they would literally put them in a mound in japan as like a form of like i guess like a victory shrine i guess so to speak and you know it you know it this kind of just gives you a general idea of just how bloody this invasion these invasions i mean actually were and i guess you know just saying all of these horrible things you know you can really do understand why you know korea doesn't really like japan especially at this point and unfortunately these invasions that happened almost 500 years ago now were the prelude to the successful japanese annexation of korea in the early 20th century which led to a 30 year long period of oppressive colonial rule over the korean population lasting into 1945 now i should also say as well that the process to basically take over the korean peninsula by the japanese was also quite methodical and also incredibly illegal as well and to get into that would require a whole other podcast in general but know and understand that it basically was in line with the very expansionist and very imperialist japan that was brewing at that time and unfortunately you know their annexation of korea was one of their biggest achievements really and you know they basically conquered korea and they were in the process of you know taking over the place and making it part of japan which i'll get into later but you know as i already said already you know when you talk about modern korean history this period of colonization and conflict with the japanese during this specific time is embedded especially in the national identity of korea and i include north and south korea in this especially because you know this at the end of the day at this time north and south korea technically didn't exist it was just korea and you know everything that happened during this period is etched in the minds of every single korean today and to be honest it's for a very very good reason now <laughs> literally in my podcast notes here i literally have like so much stuff about like the atrocities that the japanese did during this time and honestly it's so much but i'm gonna try and like summarize it to you and give you all the hits because it's a lot 
but I feel like you know all of the things that happened during this time this need to be said because it's important you know so I guess to start you know just to start off this long list of atrocities that the Japanese did to the Koreans during this time well to start the first thing that they did was essentially just treat Koreans like second-class citizens now during this time after they annexed Korea uh, basically a lot of Japanese people began to immigrate over to the newly conquered Korean Peninsula and it grew very apparent very quickly that the Japanese that moved over to Korea were gonna basically receive preferential treatment compared to all the native Koreans that were already there and you know for many Koreans during this time outside of the elite and all of like all the rich all the rich people that you often see in k-dramas you know most Koreans were farmers at the time and unfortunately after annexation a lot of Koreans basically didn't own their own land anymore and this basically resulted in many Koreans having to become tenant farmers for people who owned the land that they lived on and more often than not the people who owned these these lands in Korea were Japanese people and this is a fact that I actually quite found quite surprising actually um, by the 1930s 52 percent of Korea was actually owned by Japanese landowners with the other percentile being owned by Koreans who you know is honestly isn't really great when you put it that way so all of that isn't great like it, it sounds dreadful already but it gets worse now on top of all of this um koreans also had to deal during this time the japanese police state which you know i'm sure if you've seen movies about like world war ii or read up on things that happened during world war ii you'd be quite familiar with this but if not basically um everyone who is under japanese rule basically have to follow the rules set out by the government and basically in order to enforce all of these rules the government would go out of their way to basically basically set up the police to make sure everyone follows the rules and if the police catch anyone who doesn't follow the rules they basically take them out of their house and torture them because they're breaking the rules and sometimes they would die from tor from this torture which you know again sounds genuinely awful and is one of the hallmarks of the Japanese Empire to be honest as you know they did this everywhere they went this isn't just a Korean thing that they did on the Korean Peninsula they did it in China they did it in the Pacific Islands that they conquered eventually they did it in the Philippines they did it all over the place like you know there's a reason why there's a lot of uneasy tension throughout Asia when you talk about Japan even despite literally decades of pacifism which we'll get into later but you know there it is but i think another thing that is quite interesting about this time is the fact that you know aside from treating the native people of the korean peninsula like second class citizens they were also in the process of basically assimilating the peninsula culturally and what i mean is basically just renaming everything and changing everything to become Japanese. Now, this starts 
with the renaming of cities. Now, if you like, if you've seen like historical dramas, especially shows like Mr. Sunshine, like you know shows like that, you would recall that whenever you know a character would describe Seoul, uh, they would call it Gyeongsang in their speak. Now, at the time, like during this time in history, you know, it, it would be called Seoul, Gyeongsang, or whatever. But when the Japanese took over during this time, basically they renamed the city and they renamed a lot of other cities as well. And, you know, instead of Seoul during the colonial period, Seoul was called Keijo. And if the Japanese Empire didn't collapse because of World War II, you know, this would actually be the name of Seoul. So, you know, just to give you an idea of just how deep they went in terms of cultural assimilation, like, you know, this this is like one of the big examples right here. But another big example that occurred is how they, you know, changed the way they educated people during this time. Now, up until the Second World War, basically how Korean children were taught during this time was through a hybrid of both Japanese and Korean. So not only they would learn lots of Japanese language and Japanese topics, related topics that the government wanted to teach children, they would also learn some things about Korean language and whatnot. Now, I should reiterate that this particular aspect of the assimilation process is kind of a exception, so to speak. Now, and what I mean by that is basically, you know, right after um, annexation back in 1910, uh, basically the Japanese just tried to just put a heavy hand on the Korean population and make them be Japanese. Like they were very forceful in the beginning. And it grew so bad to the point where on a fateful day, in 1919 to be and to be exact it's march 1st 1919 basically a bunch of college students korean college students in tokyo basically started a huge rebellion in seoul or keijo i guess in this case and it was just in response to the horrible treatment that the korean people went through as the japanese were basically trying to culturally assimilate their home and basically take away their own identity, you know? And while this movement was eventually put down by the Japanese government at the time, it resulted in thousands upon thousands of casualties. Like, um, I don't, just based on the research I've done, there isn't like official, like numbers, so to speak, and there might be, but you know, you can literally look this up. Like you can look up the March 1st movement, but, like there there were literally thousands recorded dead from this uprising like thousands more were wounded and i think almost like like 50,000 people were arrested by the government as well and you know it it was very very dreadful and you know it got so bad to the point where even the japanese government colonial government at the time was quite i guess understandably terrified of what happened so they basically provided some concessions to basically not piss off the koreans anymore so you know because of this basically koreans were basically allowed to speak their own language and even some korean culture was even taught in schools and whatnot so 
that's why this whole hybrid system kind of came to be. But I will say, um, in the years before the Second World War, so like the mid 1930s and whatnot, uh, this attitude towards you know kind of keeping the peace and like trying to at least appease the Koreans somewhat did change. As you know, J- Japan started to become very heavy-handed in terms of being, you know, of trying to culturally assimilate the Korean Peninsula as they became a lot more intense in terms of basically turning the the youth of Korea into Japanese people and erasing the Korean culture as well. And this is made most prominent in something called the Soshikame, which started in the mid-1930s. And basically, this honestly is the one of the most like unfathomable and most horrifying acts that I've learned through college stuff and media is basically the act of the Japanese government at the time to basically change, I think, like I should say, forcibly change the Koreans and basically make them have Japanese names. So basically, what they had to do. Was basically going into a government office, tell the government or the government official or whatever their given Korean name, and basically the government would basically reissue them a Japanese one because they're Japanese now, they're not Korean. Which to me is just so, it's just so unfathomable. Like it's just so blatantly, just, just so blatantly genocidal in terms of just culture culturally genocidal because this is literally this forcibly erasing the culture and an identity of a people and it's honestly just horrifying to think about that this actually you know happened at a certain time in history and you know for me like um because of my classes that i've taken because i took like korean history and whatever um there was a book that I actually had to read that basically depicted this exact thing happening. Um, I highly recommend this book, by the way. It's really, really good. Um, it's called um, Lost Names. It's a book written by Richard E. Kim. And it basically depicts, through the eyes of a Korean child, like this moment in history when basically lots of Koreans at the time basically had to give away their Korean name and just have a Japanese one. and. It's honestly mind blowing to see. Like, I highly recommend you read it because it's really, really good. Really, really good piece of historical fiction. But anyway, like, this whole thing with the Soshikame was really, really bad. And to top it all off, um, when the Second World War actually kicked off, um, when, you know, everyone got involved and whatnot, um, many Koreans were basically forced to support the war effort. So, for example, many Korean men were basically forced to go to Japan to work the mines and just be basically be slave labor essentially for the Japanese war machine. And also a lot of Koreans were also conscripted into the Japanese army as well. So, you know, just to give you a more a better idea, like, you know, the Japanese army wasn't just consisting of Japanese, you know, men. Japanese soldiers, you know, like there were also people from Taiwan, there were also people from Korea. Um, I believe there were also like just prisoners from Japan's war with China as well. Like, you know, they, they took all of these people in to become conscripts in their army. So, you know, that gives you an idea of just how like how deep they 
the Koreans were involved in the war effort, whether they wanted to or not. And of course, um, many Korean women as well were forcibly became a part of the comfort women thing, which honestly is, again, as a as I, I'm sure many of you already know, is quite horrible and sick. And unfortunately, many Korean women joined women from across the Japanese empire in basically serving Japanese military officials in sexual needs, unfortunately. And it's one of many dark marks that happened during this time. And, you know, honestly, at this point, considering I've literally spent like 10 minutes telling you guys about all of the different atrocities that happened. Like, I'm sure it gives you a very good idea as to why there is this tension between Korea and Japan because, you know, all of this, all of these things, you know, create this trauma that is just unfathomable. Like, it's something that, you know, isn't something that is easily repaired and it requires tons of time and effort to even repair all the damage that this trauma, this national trauma creates. And I personally think one of the most painful scars from this time period is the unfortunate fact that during this time, even despite all of the atrocities that I've talked about already, that, you know, many Koreans did in fact willingly decide to work with the Japanese during this time. Now, you must be thinking, like, why, why on earth would any Korean be willing to work with the Japanese even if they are willingly doing this to their own people? Now, you know, that just opens up a very, very difficult dilemma that many Koreans during this time period unfortunately had to face. As, you know, during this time, many people were just trying to survive. And, you know, national pride aside, you know, they basically had to make a very, very difficult decision as they had two options. One, they could run to the mountains like in Mr. Sunshine and risk your life to become part of the Korean resistance against the Japanese, you know, regime, which a lot of people did, by the way. Or you did what you had to do to survive and work with the Japanese to the point where, you know, you can survive. And, you know, working with the Japanese, you know, means a lot of things. Some people went to great lengths to work with the Japanese because they knew that working with them would, you know, boost their status in the social hierarchy. And, you know, which would eventually lead to greater wealth and whatnot, which you know, is very enticing. But at the same time, you know, you're betraying your people, you know? And for many Koreans during this time, you know, they're willing to take that risk as, you know, to them, it ensured their survival, you know? And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, obviously this would create lots of tension, especially within Korean society itself as, you know, Obviously, as we know, you know, history ended with the Japanese Empire falling with the end of World War II. And it resulted with many of these collaborators really, you know, being in a very, very uncomfortable position because, you know, many people 
know especially that they did work with the Japanese and you know for those that you know didn't work with them and had and have had to suffer during this whole time you know you could imagine they would want some payback which leads to a whole like can of worms of things that happen which is honestly very very complicated which I won't go into this time around but you know just know that you know this it was a very very difficult decision and for many Koreans they basically had to make a decision on whether or not they wanted to improve their lives by working with the people that they hate the most or you know fight for independence and risk your own life themselves so you know again this time period for Korea incredibly painful and very very traumatic which you know again gives you an idea as to why you know Japan is incredibly hated because of the colonial period now fast forward 60 to 70 years to 2021 and you find yourself in a place of relationship where it's just really weird very complicated and honestly as someone who is a third party in this issue or struggle if you will it's incredibly uncomfortable and very unfortunate to watch because you know right now in 2021 you know south korea and japan have a very abysmal relationship at the moment and it's to do with a lot of reasons really i mean for one um there's still everything that has happened in the colonial period and world war ii which is still a hotly contested subject um there's also the whole thing with the comfort women issue and you know the, the government not you know compensating i mean the government as in the japanese government not compensating all of the comfort women for everything even though both sides have tried to negotiate something for years now and it's failed every time and it's been a disaster every time which is another hotly contested issue and there's also just the fact that well this is this might be interesting for you for you listener listeners out there if you haven't heard about this before but essentially um if you were to ask a japanese citizen about history regarding world war ii and you know the the imperial period of japan you know they would tell you a story and perspective that is incredibly different from what everyone else was was told and to put it bluntly basically um, basically, Japanese, the Japanese education system after World War II essentially whitewashed all of the atrocities that the, em- the Japanese Empire did on everyone else, basically. So in Japanese education, there is little to no, like, no like, mention of any of the atrocities that happened in Korea or China or any other Asian nation that was conquered by the the Japanese Empire. And it leads to a situation where, you know, you literally have generations that go after the Second World War not knowing about any of the atrocities that, you know, their country did on other people in the past, you know? And honestly, look, you literally see videos on this because there's been videos, you know, talking about this. Like, the only time that a Japanese citizen or, like, a commoner figures out 
all of the atrocities that happened in the past is honestly through the power of the internet. That is generally the only reason that some people know. And that comes from effort from them to actually, you know, investigating, you know, what happened themselves. And, you know, most people don't go through that. So without all that being said, it creates a very awkward situation where, you know, from the Korean side, you know, they're obviously incredibly angry for everything that happened in the colonial period and whatever. And, you know, there's just this very, very systematic misunderstanding between both sides because, because you know, on the Japanese side, while the government is very much, you know, on board with like trying to forget all of the horrible things that happened in the past and trying to kind of hide it and like settle it and whatnot. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of the pop a lot of the Japanese population that just doesn't really know about what happened. So as a result, like whenever they see like Koreans like getting angry at them for everything, all of this, they just don't understand like they they don't have that perspective and from their perspective they just see the koreans and everyone else as just oh my god this again like why do we have to deal with this over and over again which look in some respects there is some validity in that viewpoint but this also comes from a lot of ignorance about the whole issue which creates this really horrendous and very complicated mess that is Korea-Japan relations. So there's all of that. Now, this kind of segues into how all of this is seen in K-dramas and K-pop. Now, to start with K-dramas, I think this is probably the easiest one to spot because literally all of the K-dramas that at least I've seen that you know, are based in this colonial period or are just historical in some way, shape, or form, always depict, at least most of the time, Japan as the great evil in the show. Like, Japan are the perennial villains of any historical K-drama. Full stop. Like, you will literally... I mean, I think I can say this with good faith. I think you can literally, like not have any other enemy in a historical k-drama that isn't japanese because it just makes sense for the japanese to be the great evil in these dramas because of all of the historical connotations that come from the colonial era and all of the things that come before it so you know in that context it makes perfect sense and you know People like to watch this kind of stuff. It's it's kind of like the equivalent of how, in America anyway, there's always movies talking about America in world wars or their fight for independence from the British. You know, it's that kind of feeling of national pride that you get from these kind of historical dramas. And even though they're tragic, you know, it gives you that feeling of, yeah, I. This is what it's about to be Korean and why I am what I am. You know what I mean? Like, that's what these kind of dramas give to Koreans watching and to other people that are watching as well. And, you know, I think it, I think there's honestly a very good reason why, you know, dramas like Mr. Sunshine, for example, are what they are because 
They're so impactful. They're so emotional. And they depict a very dark time in modern Korean history. And it galvanizes people to be proud of their country. Even if, you know, what's depicted is horrible, tragic, and sad. But on Mr. Sunshine, I do want to take the time, since we're talking about this drama, to talk about a specific character that actually took some heat from fans, actually, when the show was released. Now, if you didn't know this, um, I may as well tell you now, but basically, Gu Dong-mei, who is honestly my favorite anti-hero in a K-drama ever, took criticism, well, the writers took criticism anyway, for essentially being a Japanese collaborator, which he was, like, he, he literally was. And like I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, a lot of people did, you know, collaborate with the Japanese. And that's, you know, a part of the story that, you know, a lot of people, at least in Korea, understandably do not want to know about because, you know, these people are, you could say that they're traitors to the nation. Which, I mean, look, I, I'm sure if you were to ask a Korean that, they would definitely say they were traitors. And look, that, that that's their opinion and make that of what you will. But, you know, at the end of the day, they literally depicted a Japanese collaborator in the show. And because of that, lots of people watching the show took, took you know, offense to the fact that, you know, they're literally seeing a Japanese collaborator do Japanese collaborator things on screen and doing things that, you know, are, you know, quite horrible. Especially when you think about the context of the whole colonial thing with Japan and whatever. And, you know, it creates a very interesting situation because, you know, it it's depicting this, you know. And I think it, it got to the point where I, I believe there were some articles saying that, you know, some people were accusing this show of being too pro-Japanese, if that makes sense. Which, I mean, I think if you look at the whole context of the entire film, if you I mean, not the film, but the entire drama, if you look at it as a whole piece of art, I think that that's like a ridiculous claim because it's quite pro-Korean to be totally honest with you, especially at the end. Like, it's blatantly pro-Korean at the end, and that's probably why the ending turned out the way it did, because it it goes full nationalist, like nationalist Korean at the end, at least in my opinion anyway. But I think when you think about it as a story, I think it shows us a very complex character in Gu Dong-mei, who, you know, is obviously a collaborator, but at the same time, it shows us the complexities behind why people at the time decided to be collaborators, which I think is, as much as people don't want to hear about this part of the story, I think it's an important part to tell because, you know, it that these things happened. Like, you can't, like, at least in my opinion, no matter how how much you hate seeing this happen, I don't think you can see this you can't see this situation as something that's black and white because it wasn't. And I, to be honest, I quite appreciate the fact that, you know, we have characters like Gu Dong-mei in a show like Mr. Sunshine because it, it gives better nuance to what happened during the time, which is great. But that being said, you know, it still created lots of controversy because of all of the reasons that I've told you already, which created for a very, very interesting show. But moving on to K-pop. Now, K-pop 
is in an interesting situation as well. Now, it's, I mean, as you've probably could tell from at least from the past six or seven years, arguably more, really, um, there's been a long, rep big reputation from K-pop labels to bring on Japanese members, and they have to great success. I mean, you can look at groups such as Twice or NCT, Seventeen, and so on, that have Japanese members, and they have gone on to do great things. And for the most part, I don't really see like people taking issue with them have with them being Japanese. Really, um, I think if anything, the tension does arise when you know the things that I've talked about numerous on numerous occasions about like the colonial period or anything to do with the Japanese government is when things get a bit hairy. And I think while doing research on this, um, two stories popped up that kind of talk about this. And one of them is one that happened fairly recently. Like this, I mean, kind of recently anyway. It, it happened back in 2019 where, you know, Sana from Twice took a lot of, con took a lot of flack for commenting on the changing of Japan's emperor. Now, basically, this was, I, I believe this was an Instagram post, I believe. And to quote what she said directly, uh, she basically said, I was born in the Heisei era, era, so I'm sad to see it end. I would say, good job, the Heisei, which is the name of the whole era thing that uh, the new emperor will inherit. And basically, for extra context, um, basically, with every Japanese emperor, um, there is a new era at least in the Japanese calendar anyway. So basically the emperor before this new emperor in Emperor Akito was the Heisei era. And the new one with this new emperor is basically called the Reiwa era. So Reiwa era anyway. So that's basically what that's talking about. But unfortunately, this pissed off Koreans online because the emperor... It, well, he is really just like a ceremonial head of state of Japan. So basically, he's kind of like the queen from the UK. Um, for some people, um, the emperor represents the old Japanese empire. Which, really, when you think about it, they're kind of not wrong, really. Because, um, little known fact, but, you know, the war didn't exactly put an end to the line of Japanese emperors. Um... Basically, the one that was responsible for World War II, Emperor Hirohito, uh, actually survived the war because even though he totally kind of deserved consequences for being responsible for World War II, but basically the United States basically kept him alive. And he actually lived on to like the 1980s, I think, and served as emperor until then, until he died. But, you know, I, in that context, I can kind of understand why this is a thing, but... It, it again it, it just kind of just highlights the whole tensions you know surrounding both countries when you know topics like this come around you know but the next story in k-pop which probably is the most i mean provocative i i guess is the incident that happened back in 2018 with bts when jimin when he was when he and bts was about to perform on a japanese tv show was caught wearing a shirt of the atom bomb that was dropped on japan which coincided with celebrating korean independence day which is august 15th 
Now, this shirt, just wearing this shirt, caused immense outrage in Japan because, well, because of the fact that, well, it just looking at the t-shirt itself, it 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 looks like it's very much glorifying the atom bomb, which you know it killed thousands of people in radioactive destruction. Which you know, obviously, for a lot of Japanese people, that struck a chord with people because, for obvious reasons, that was a very dark day in Japanese history, and you know it that resulted in BTS not being able to perform in Japan for a while and not being able to perform on Japanese TV, and it caused the huge mess. Now. Meanwhile, back in Korea, people were asking what's the problem with celebrating Korean Independence Day. And, you know, you can see where the problem lies here because, you know, it because for me as someone who is a third party in this, it's just immensely frustrating to see how both sides kind of react to this. Situation in particular, because look, I, I'm sure, like, look, people can figure this out and see that you know this is a very unfortunate situation, but it, it at least from this internet anyway, this is this internet reaction. It just feels like both sides just don't understand why the other is upset, which comes back to the whole thing to do with ignorance about each other's circumstances and history. Which I've already covered already, but you know it's coming, it's rearing its ugly head again here, and it created a ton of issues at the time, which is immensely frustrating to watch, and you know it. This examples like this in both K-pop and K-dramas just tell you just how, you know, just how both countries, at least from the Korean side especially, have this very antagonistic relationship with Japan, and. You know, due to misunderstanding and ignorance, it, at least to me, feels like a very one-sided relationship. In that, you know, Koreans rightfully like dislike Japan for these things, but from the Japanese perspective, they they don't really see the issues. And quite quite interestingly enough, in fact, like they quite like Korea. Actually, like, if you, I mean, thanks to K-pop and K-dramas, like, Korean pop culture is immensely popular in Japan right now, and especially if you like look at the young people, like they love K-pop, like they they just love it, they love every single bit of it. <laughs> But at the same time, there's like this this backdrop of these historical issues that are like there. And it just creates such a very uncomfortable position. So you know, it, 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 it. This bottom line, like it, just affects everything. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, you see it in K dramas and K pop. And to be totally honest with you, you'll most likely see instances like this in both mediums, in future K dramas or K pop things, because you know that's just how. It is. Um, K pop culture often reflects the current state of what society is feeling, and if these negative tensions, you know, continue on through in the years going forward, um, you'll probably see something like this rear its head again.
which is just how the cycle of tension and ang anger just seems to be between both countries. So there's all of that. Now, with all of this being said, with how Korea and Japan don't are not exactly on the best of terms and, and how it coincides with the way specific K-dramas and how K-pop is seen, you know, I feel like it's only right to provide my own input on this because, you know, for me, I feel like I'm in a very interesting position in that, you know, I have some pretty personal experiences with this whole thing, like in real life. Because just in case if you don't know, basically in my real life job, you know, I'm basically in a position where, you know, I work with traveling Korean or Japanese students all the time. Like I, I have the opportunity to basically interact with them whenever they study abroad at my university, which I work at still to this day. And, you know, whenever I meet Korean students, like, you know, I don't like necessarily like bring a topic like this up with them directly, of course, because why would you? It's pretty heavy. But whenever it does come up, I find myself seeing the Koreans that I meet in, at least in terms of opinion anyway, in three different camps, which I find incredibly interesting. And I feel like it you know, it applies to this podcast because I feel like it adds some additional perspective to it because, you know, this is a very personal viewpoint of the whole thing. And everything that I've told you so far is for the most part a very national point of view, so to speak. Like, it's looking at it from a country-to-country -country lens, if that makes sense. And I feel like since I have this opinion, I feel like it's only right to share it because it's... I think you'll find it very interesting. So, to start, um, as I already said already, I've met Korean students at three different camps on Japan. And the first one is quite a unsurprising one, really. Um, this camp just hates Japan. <laughs> I mean, you don't really, I don't really have to explain more as to why, because I've already mentioned it so many times on the show already. But I will say, because since I'm working with college students and they tend to be on the younger side, um, I haven't really seen anyone like directly say they don't like Japan. And whenever they're exposed to say like Japanese pop culture or Japanese food or Japanese people, they're quite neutral on it, if that makes sense. I mean, I've I feel like I've only been in one instance where I've literally seen a Korean person like be very outspoken in the way that they hate Japan and it happened on a tour that I had to give the Korean students where we basically had to give them like a campus tour of the University of Hawaii at Mano which is like the big uh, Hawaii University here on Oahu and there's a part of the campus that has a very beautiful Japanese style garden. It's really beautiful, really nice, and I figured, okay, you know, we may as well give the Korean students the time to see a beautiful garden like this because it's a beautiful garden, you know what I mean? But when we got there, um, I distinctly remember because my friend told me this who was helping me with this tour, like he overheard one of the Korean students say in Korean, um, this is translated by the way, 
for your convenience, of course. But basically, this person said, I hate Japan when we got to the garden. Which, in of itself, I, find, I found it incredibly surprising that someone said that because you know it like i i knew that you know there was some uneasy feeling between japan of course because for obvious reasons but i just didn't think someone would actually say it out loud like that you know what i mean like it now granted like this person said what she said i think it was she yeah it was she in korean so she probably figured like no one really could understand what they said which meant me and my friend but it happened, which is surprising to me, which I guess kind of just confirms what I've said already on the show with how some people just don't like Japan for a lot of historical reasons, which, you know, they they have the right to feel that way, to be honest, because of a lot of reasons that I've already mentioned already. So there's that. Now, moving on to the next camp. Now, this camp is incredibly interesting in that this group of people you know they just genuinely really like japan <laughs> like they just do they just love the pop culture like they just love anime they love pokemon they love all of that they love nintendos they love to play the switch or like a nintendo ds or whatever like they love japanese food and you know people in this camp tend to have had the opportunity to go to japan for vacation or for work so you know this group is very much on board with liking japan for the most part now i know saying this seems quite surprising considering all of the negative sentiment towards japan which in of itself is true but you know it it honestly depends on the individual really because you know outside of national consensus so to speak like individuals tend to think differently and for these people who tend to be on the younger side as i already said like you know they haven't really like how should i explain this like i guess there's like a difference between learning about japan in school and all of the horrible things that happened and actually experiencing it and I think there's a distinct difference there because, you know, when you experience something that is so traumatic and so horrendous, like, you know, that's something you obviously don't really forget. And I think no matter what happens, no matter how much time has passed, you still hold on to the feelings that you experienced during that experience because it was horrible and traumatic and nothing will ever change your mind. But when you learn something from school, for example, like, you know, you... I think you take in what you learn and you understand that but at the same time you at least for some people anyway have this willingness to see other things you want to see other perspectives and experience other things that you wouldn't necessarily experience and this is exactly what this camp really represents really like they they don't they haven't exactly you know been traumatized with the atrocities that happened in the past and they don't really see japan as the country that conquered their people at one point like they just see japan as you know this cool place this very somewhat futuristic place that is different it's cool it's trendy it's clean you know what i mean like it they see it as 
you know, the modern Japan that we all know today, you know, like they, they see it as that. And, you know, there's very much a contingent of Koreans that I've met that very much do feel this way. And, you know, I think it's very important to emphasize this fact because, you know, like it, just because people at the, like, are they like a people, like in terms of the consensus, consensus hate Japan for all of these reasons, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to everyone, you know? So there's all of that. Now, lastly, camp three is, you know, it, it's, this one is the interesting camp, which really counts for most people that I've met who have talked about this. And they essentially are kind of in between both camp one and camp two. And to really sum up this group, like, this group of people doesn't necessarily have a reason to truly hate Japan because, you know, as I already said already, the atrocities didn't happen to them. But at the same time, they're still wary about Japan and its people because of what happened in school. Like, it's, it, like, look, it, it doesn't necessarily give you this innate, immediate feeling of fear and horror. I guess, but it just gives you this feeling in the back of your mind that, you know, hey, you know, this place is the place that, you know, conquered my people, you know? It, it's not something that comes up, but it's just there, and you think about it when the time comes, you know, if that makes sense? So there's that. And, you know, <laughs> you know, with the way Korean education works, especially when covering the colonial period, you know, this is how, you know, a majority of Koreans that I've met feel about the whole thing and you know it I mean considering the very antagonistic and very confrontational nature of the whole thing at least from the Korean side anyway I mean this viewpoint feels like the most moderate about the whole thing if anything and you know it even if it's like a minority of people in all likelihood I mean, look, I don't know for sure, but it, I just have this gut feeling. It's probably like a minority of people. But it, it does, you know, give me at least a small inkling of hope that at, that even regardless of all of this rhetoric that goes on between both countries, I it gives me at least maybe some hope that maybe some people on both sides might have the willingness to see each other not as... Koreans or Japanese, but just as people, you know, like all of this rhetoric, nationalist rhetoric aside, like just I feel like the only way that this problem gets solved is if both sides can just see each other as fellow human beings with aspirations, dreams, struggles, and fears, you know, like I, th I just feel like if both sides can connect with each other on that level, which I feel like right now it just feels like something that feels like a pipe dream, if anything. Like, I just feel like if, at least if on a personal level that that can be achieved, then, you know, there can at least be some steps made in repairing the trauma that at least Korea has going through, that is going through, you know? Like, and it can at least put put both countries on the path to finally recovering 
from things that happened 60 to 70 years ago, you know? Like, like, you know, I say this because, like, I, I just can't help but just be reminded of a story that one of my professors told me about this whole thing when we were learning it in class. And it revolves around one of my professor's friends who is a professor at a Japanese university. And he's Japanese, by the way, for context. And, you know, this professor was, well, he is still a, you know, he's a professor in Japanese history and he's well aware about, you know, historical things about Japan. And I think one thing that's interesting about this guy is the fact that, you know, he he researched and he knows about the atrocities that the Japanese Empire went through. And he understands full well the consequences of that and the modern day consequences that the country has to go through because of the way things have turned out to be in regards to how the government acts and whatnot. And, you know, knowing that and also add in the fact that he quite likes to travel and he wants to travel to places he hasn't been, he decides at one time, at, and at one moment, I believe, to go to Korea because he likes to go hiking and he wants to hike up a mountain. I'm not sure which one, but he wants to hike up a mountain. So he boards a plane to go to Korea and he goes to this mountain and he goes on a hike. Now, when he gets there, he starts to hike and I think it doesn't take long for him. Well, I think he hiked the trail for a little while. And I think soon enough, he got a bit lost. And, you know, unfortunately for this fella, um, he, he couldn't really speak Korean. <laughs> he only could speak Japanese and a little bit of English. And he was lost, like, going up this mountain. And he didn't really know who to communicate with. And then while he was kind of contemplating what he was about to do, all of a sudden there was a group of Koreans, you know, walking towards him. And some of them decided to approach him and ask him what was going on. Now, at this point, this guy is honestly horrified at what is about to potentially happen. Because, you know, he is obviously well aware of the history, as I've already said. And at this point, he's, pr he's thinking at this point, Oh my god, um, these groups of, this group of Koreans are trying to help me, but I am totally, genuinely afraid that if I tell them like who I actually am, and if I tell them that I'm Japanese, that they might, like, I don't know, beat me up because I'm Japanese, you know? Like, that, that's genuinely, like, that was like a genuine fear that this guy had. And, you know, eventually it came to a point where, you know, this guy basically told this group of Koreans that he, yeah, yeah, he was Japanese. <laughs> and, you know, you would think at this point, like, oh, oh, uh-oh, uh, did something horrible happen to this guy? Um, thankfully not. Um, as instead of thinking of the absolute worst happening for this guy, Instead, this group of Koreans basically went up and said, Okay, um, let's help this guy. And basically took him along on the hike. And they basically did the hike together. And they actually ate a meal together and whatnot. And I think this is the moment that, you know, stuck with me the most. And it's when, you know, everyone's eating together. 
right? And, you know, the topic about, you know, the whole thing with Japan and whatever comes up inevitably because I figured that's kind of something that, that would come up in a situation like this. And, you know, since this guy is, you know, knowledgeable about everything that happened, like, you know, he, you know, he comes out and says, you know, everything that happened was horrible and it was wrong that it happened. And, you know, he wishes that, you know, the government would actually properly apologize about the whole thing. And, you know, the reaction from the Koreans is what stuck with me the most. And it's that, you know, they basically forgave him, really. Like, they they were very understanding about him doing what he did. And I think that stuck with me the most because, you know, like, I think... At that point, I think they could easily just be very antagonistic towards this guy because, you know, he's Japanese and he's like, he's supposed to be the great evil and whatever. But instead, they were just very welcoming. And I think arguably, they were probably relieved in meeting a Japanese guy who is knowledgeable about the pain and trauma that South Korea went through as a nation. And they're just happy that someone you know, finally acknowledged it and understand it and understood it and just wanted to, you know, I, I don't think he was really realistically trying to make amends on his own, but he just wanted to acknowledge that the whole thing was bad, which I think ultimately is what most Koreans want from this whole thing, you know? And I, it, it, it just, it just, makes the whole thing so frustrating to me because you know you there there is a world where both sides can finally just understand and come to terms with it but on the political stage and on a, and at a political level they don't because of reasons that I've mentioned before and it's just really sad because, you know, stories like I've already told you about this Japanese professor who went to Korea and befriended Koreans and, you know, got the full grace of Koreans who forgave him for everything that happened. This feels like a very wholesome story that should happen more often and something that should be celebrated and not be something that just seems like a anomaly in a sea of just tension and rhetoric, hateful rhetoric, and all of this jazz, which, look, again, I should emphasize again, like, it comes from a genuine place that should be solved, but there just doesn't seem to be an opportunity or an appetite or a mood or whatever to truly solve it, you know? It's just really, just genuinely upsetting to watch as someone who is, you know, quite a fan of both countries you know like you know i know this podcast is focused on k-pop and k-dramas and anything k-culture but you know i like japan as well like i i love a lot of things about japan and i just would love to be in a world where both sides can finally just be at peace you know like i just want to be in a world where i just don't have to think about you know whether or not if 
one thing that I say in particular might piss off a Korean because it might be offensive about, you know, other things, you know, like it, it, it's just unbelievably frustrating for me. And I guess that comes from my unique perspective, I guess. But, you know, there's that. Um, but anyway, um, I hope you liked my very, very, very long episode about Korea-Japan relations. Um, again, as I already mentioned earlier, I apologize that this episode came out like literally a day after it was supposed to um you know like i already mentioned already i wanted to add in this extra section about this topic because i just felt like it was important to add something like this and hopefully you guys found some extra perspective about this topic and how it affects k-pop and k-dramas in more ways that you can imagine you know but with that being said um be sure to tune in on friday for an episode reacting to episode three of hospital playlist and be sure to tune in next week monday as always for another episode of the podcast but without further ado uh this is gian from the k-pop rama podcast signing off take care and have a brilliant week everybody peace bye-bye aloha <laughs>